Hey, y'all, this is Bud Elliott of SB Nation Recruiting, uh, and this is the SB Nation College Ball Recruiting Podcast. We call it that because, let's face it, all the creative names for college football recruiting podcasts were taken, so we're going to take the obvious uh, search engine play with the name. Been a couple weeks since I joined you on this, and uh, want excited to get back into podcasting here. A lot of stuff's been going on. As always, you can follow me on SBNation.com, also on Twitter, at SBN Recruiting, and we hope to very soon be on iTunes, for those who've been asking, as we switch platforms for the podcast. So be on the lookout for that. This week, uh, I wanted to start with a piece that I write every year, and a piece that I really enjoy writing, um, because while college football is sort of depressingly static at the top, it is interesting to see all the ways in which teams will will succeed or, or in which they'll fail and, and which underdogs will rise up and and challenge the more blue bloods of the sport. That's all the, all, all the cool stuff, and that's why we watch this sport, because if, if you just cared about who won the national title only, the sport would be rather boring. But people do still care about who w- wins the national title. Uh, and for that reason, every year I publish the, the blue chip ratio. Uh, and this is something that we came up with a couple years ago at SB Nation. A lot of people have helped me on this, and and we've refined the idea over time. But looking back, essentially since the start of the BCS, I was trying to determine, is there a minimum level of recruiting that a national champion has to achieve in the four years before it wins the title? And what we found was essentially over the last decade plus, a school needs to sign more four- and five-star recruits than two- and three-stars over the previous four classes. So basically the guys who are making up your freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior classes. Every team that we could find that we could get good recruiting data for met this mark. And so essentially that so far, at least in recent memory, has been the baseline. That's not to say that a team outside of that mark can't win the national championship. It just does seem like it's fairly unlikely. My guess is that at some point, a team will bust through and break the trend. And then maybe we'll have to reevaluate, or maybe we'll have to look and say, that's that's a bit of an outlier right there. But without further ado, the list, if you've not checked this out, you can just Google Blue Chip Ratio SB Nation. You'll find it. That's probably easier than me reading you the whole hyperlink. Alabama, 77% of kids signed over the last four years have been blue chips. USC, 70%. Little note on USC, they have been hurt by scholarship sanctions, so they've not signed quite the number of elite prospects that some schools on this list have, but they're still up there. Ohio State, uh, for my money, the second best recruiting team over the last four years, 70%, second only to the tie, really. Um, LSU, 66%. A lot of people are very excited to see LSU this year after they lost so much to the draft in previous seasons. It seems like they finally got a couple of their underclassmen to stick around and, and not bounce early to the league. Notre Dame at 63%. Florida State, a, a team that many people are picking to go to the college ball playoff at 60%. Uh, Michigan, 59%. Uh, Jim Harbaugh, I think, has more talent to work with there than people realize as far as what Brady Hoke left him. Now, you can say what you want to about Brady Hoke's failure to develop the talent and to deploy the talent, but but he at least signed talented players there. Auburn at 57, have to see what happens with that. 
UCLA at 55, again, don't think a whole lot of people are picking them to win the national title. They have lost an awful lot to the draft. Texas A&M at 53%. Why is Kevin Sumlin potentially on the hot seat? If you're going to recruit at that level, you had better produce wins. A&M, especially in home games, big home games, have they've just not been good enough under Kevin Sumlin to date. We'll see if that changes this year, but um, recruiting at that level can be a blessing and a curse. Georgia at 52% speaks well of the talent that Mark Rick was able to bring in, and, and Kirby Smart, uh, I think he's going to have success at Georgia, and I think he'll have it in a relatively short order because he, it's not like he has to totally rebuild that program. He just has to rebuild certain aspects of the program. Clemson at 52%, obviously a, a national champion pick of many people this year. I think I have them going to the playoff as well, most likely. Texas at 50%. I kind of echo the analysis for Texas A&M with Texas here. If you recruit at that level, you'd better win. Otherwise, boosters are going to say, all you can do is recruit. You, you don't develop and, and you don't deploy the talent appropriately. Uh, I'm not so sure that I buy that, that Charlie Strong is on a major hot seat this year unless they have kind of a disastrous season. They have had a, a pretty solid last couple of months in terms of getting talent into the program. But uh, yeah, that is your list of teams that meet the standard. And you might notice there are a couple of teams who are being picked to go to the college ball playoff, being picked to even win the national title who are not on that list. A lot of people think Tennessee can come out of the East and potentially win the SEC. They're very close at 44%. Um, Ole Miss lost a lot to the draft. People are still very high on the Rebels. They're there at 38%. Drop down a little bit more, Oklahoma at 36%. That one is really intriguing to me. And I, I believe that when the streak is broken, and I think it will be at some point, it will be with a team that has recruited at a good but perhaps not elite level, like Oklahoma, that has developed the talent well and that is well coached. And the fourth element there, that has an elite level quarterback. Because I think quarterback is the true equalizer. Uh, if you don't have super elite talent, how can you be an elite team? I think quarterback can sometimes do that for you. You saw the rest of Oregon's roster when it beat Florida State and then went to the national title game just two years ago against Ohio State. They were so close to, obviously they got stomped in that game, but you know twice Oregon, which is a good but not great recruiter, has gone to the national title game with, with, with either you know, good to elite quarterback play. I think that's how it's going to happen uh, at, at some point. But o- Oklahoma at 36%, that's, that's a decent ways off. It'll be interesting to see if Oklahoma can either stay healthy enough or you know, if they have to dip into their depth. How will that go? Do they have enough depth on that roster to win a national title if they sustain uh, a normal number of injuries on the season? I also find this very interesting when you look at this from a conference level. Um, With the SEC having by far the most number of teams in in the the list that actually recruits at a national title level, and, and several teams just below that, like Tennessee, Florida, and Ole Miss. Um, that, that league is is clearly the toughest, although I, I think, like I spoke about earlier, quarterback play is is a bit lacking there with Chad Kelly and then I'm not sure who else you really like in that league. But elsewhere, the ACC 
has two with Florida State and Clemson, and Miami, uh, one of the closer teams to to, to be in there in, in the mid 30s. The Big 12 is sort of one of these leagues that desperately needs its best recruiters, <coughs> Texas mostly, to step up and, and and to be an elite team. TCU does great things with development and deployment, but so far they really haven't signed the, the level of player that would make you think they can actually win a national title. I will also note that Oklahoma has been recruiting much better in the last two years than the two years uh, prior to that. And if Oklahoma continues to recruit like they are this year, they're going to again be up at that elite level uh, where they were in the early part of the 2000s. Out in the Pac-12, everybody focuses on, on, on the Pac-12 North with Stanford and Oregon and, and now Washington receiving a lot of preseason hype. But none of those teams really recruit at a national championship level. They're, they're all really good at, at the development and the deployment, but Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, and the you know, west of the Rocky Mountains up there really are just not a great spot to recruit at. And, and most of the talent is in the south, and in the south, you do have two top recruiters in USC and UCLA who have had very various issues, in, including most notably coaching. So it seems like in the Pac-12, the North doesn't get the super elite level of player, but does do a good job at development and deployment. In the South, they do sign that level of player, at least at the top of the South, and they struggle sometimes with the development and the in-game deployment of that talent. And all credit to my uh, colleague Bill Connolly, for the uh, acquisition, development, and deployment three-facet breakdown of college football. I, I think that's that's brilliant and, and a good way to kind of put different attributes in buckets. If the Pac-12 could somehow combine some of the coaching in the Pac-12 North with the talent that gets signed by the Pac-12 South, you'd probably have a juggernaut. And, and maybe we know what that looks like. Maybe that is what Pete Carroll's USC teams look like. I, I think that's certainly possible there. I'd also note in the Big Ten, just how hard it is to to move up in this conference. Michigan State has done such a great job with development and deployment, and yet you do wonder if Michigan State can recruit well enough to take that next step. You know, last year they got to the playoffs, and then they ran into a team that has a truly elite level of talent in Alabama. After already beating one in Ohio State, and it's just so difficult to beat multiple teams like that in one year if you don't sign a certain minimum quality level of player. And Michigan State's recruiting actually is improving, even as Michigan uh, continues to improve and, and does well nationally. Michigan State has done well in the state. But if you're Penn State, you're sitting there and thinking, man, we have Ohio State, Michigan State, and Michigan in the same division? James Franklin's not doing a bad job at Ohio State. He just has to basically do an incredible job just to just to get a whiff of credit. And if you're Maryland, well, we'll talk about Maryland a little bit later in a podcast because several listeners on Twitter, when I asked for uh, listener and show topics, responded and asked for questions about Maryland. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But th- that's a really interesting article, I feel like. It's one of the favorite ones that I write on an annual basis. Again, just Google Blue Chip Ratio SB Nation and you can find it, or ask me for it on Twitter. I'll gladly link it. It really does uh, serve as a great reference tool as well when people say, oh, recruiting doesn't really matter. Well, it doesn't matter for some things. 
if you want to win a national title, it really is a, or at least it has been, what people in logic would call a necessary but not sufficient condition. Recruiting at that level is required, basically, to win a national title. But it doesn't guarantee a national title. You still have to take the talent and develop it and deploy it. But there's a reason guys like Gary Patterson and Mark D'Antonio don't have national championship rings while Gene Chizik does. And the reason is talent. You only get 20 minutes or 20 hours a week by NCAA rule, and I realize these are skirted all the time, but the NCAA limits your practice time to 20 hours a week. That's not like it is in the NFL. In the NFL, they can practice these guys till the cows come home if they want to. Now, they don't because they don't want to lose their players, but you can spend significantly more time on football in the NFL than you can in college. And so the amount of impact your coaching can have in college is limited by rule. And if you don't start with a certain minimum level of sheer talent, it just becomes a really tough proposition, especially if you don't stay healthy. Next topic I want to move on to today is the Teddy Bridgewater injury, the former Miami Northwestern quarterback who went to Louisville and thrived under Charlie Strong and then was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings, has had a really nice NFL career so far. Very promising young quarterback. Guy that I root for personally. I, I, I really enjoy watching him succeed. Bridgewater yesterday left Minnesota's practice in an ambulance for a non-contact knee injury. And that is a really serious thing. And immediately when I saw the news that he was injured and left practice with a non-contact knee injury in an ambulance... My thought went to Josh Sweat, the former number one overall recruit at the time out of Virginia Beach, and he ultimately signed with Florida State, but at the time, he was drawing all these comparisons to Jadavion Clowney. This was in the class of 2015, so Sweat goes down with an injury. It hits Twitter late on a Friday night in September of 2014, and people thought, why did an ambulance come? for a, a knee injury. That that seems odd, right? Well, it turns out that Sweat had dislocated his knee and torn his ACL. And whenever that happens, there's actually concern that you can lose your leg. And people at Sweat's high school acted quickly enough and, and, and stabilized him. And luckily, there, there was no arterial damage uh, and no damage, I guess, to the patella. Um, and Sweat made a miraculous recovery. He signed with Florida State. He had to change his visit schedule up a little bit. And I can tell you personally that nobody at Florida State expected him when they signed him to be playing in 2015. He was out for only 11 months, which is incredible, to get that knee stabilized again. Um, And he played at a fairly high level for a true freshman just 11 months later. You know, come come August, he was banging in practice, and, and he was one of the better true freshmen in the ACC last year. If you're a Minnesota Vikings fan, there is hope. Now, obviously Bridgewater is going to miss the season, but it was revealed today, and I think there's some various reports about the other stuff in this, but Bridgewater indeed did dislocate the knee and and, and tear his ACL. But the good news is that there's no arterial damage. That's a huge deal, because if you have the arterial damage there and you have the damage to other tendons or other ligaments, then you have a real prospect of 
losing the limb or potentially losing function in the limb. And it looks like that because the, the swift action of the Minnesota Vikings trainers that Bridgewater is going to be able to make a full recovery. Now, I'm not saying it's only going to take him 11 months. It, it could take him 18 months. I, I have no idea. Every, every situation is different. But from a recruiting perspective, and, and you don't see a whole lot of people who follow the NFL in recruiting, and I'm not professing to follow the NFL a whole lot, but my immediate thought went to Josh Sweat, and I didn't really feel like I needed to write an article about this, but I, I thought it was an interesting comparison to make, and that's why I brought it up on on the uh, on the podcast here. Uh, a lot of people have made some comparisons to some NBA injuries, like Sean Livingston. I don't know if, know enough about that to say how similar that is, but if you have a dislocated knee and a torn ACL, it is indeed possible to be playing football the next year. Maybe not probable, but certainly possible. And and good luck and best wishes to Teddy Bridgewater on a speedy recovery. The final thing I wanted to discuss before I get to listener topics today is Nebraska. And I wrote about Nebraska on Tuesday after on Monday I reading a article discussing the, the need for toughness throughout the Nebraska program, from the players to the coaches to the administration. And, and on Tuesday, and it, to its credit from the Omaha World Herald, I thought the article was a good article. It wasn't poor. I wasn't trying to take it apart or, or take it down. Um, but I wrote on Tuesday, toughness would be good for Nebraska football, but talent would be better. And I just talked about the the kind of silliness of making the comparisons of toughness to Michigan and Ohio State when over the last four seasons, or four recruiting classes, Ohio State has signed 69 four- and five-star players. Michigan has signed 51. Nebraska has just signed 17 when the competition is signing three and four times the number of elite players that you are, I'm really not sure that the primary focus needs to be on toughness, but rather perhaps on finding a way to acquire more talent or better use that talent. I embedded a number of, of tweets from Andy Staples, my friend at Sports Illustrated, and I think this is a good read. Uh, if you Google that, toughness would be good for Nebraska, talent would be better. You can read that. I thought it was a cool feature to write about because it also went into a number of the things that Nebraska had to overcome, leaving the Big 8 for the Big 12, some of the Prop 48 stuff, some of the issues that they had in losing the walk-on program and uh, the NCAA rules on transportation to campus and kids having to take commercial flights instead of chartered flights is makes it more difficult for people to visit Nebraska. The strength and conditioning program, EDGE, uh, becoming smaller over time as more and more teams realized that what Nebraska was doing was giving them an enormous advantage and that proper investment needed to be made in strength conditioning programs. Now you see these enormous strength conditioning staffs and weight rooms like Nebraska once had and nobody else had. It's just interesting to see the dynamics of college football ebb and flow. And at the end, I wonder if there's a path for Nebraska to get back to national titles I'm not so sure. But I do think there's a path for Nebraska to get to conference titles. And the way is this. It plays in the Big Ten West. That's not a talented or, or even good division. So in looking at that, if they can, can win that division, I don't know, maybe twice every five years, maybe three times every five years, if, if that's what their aspirations are, you got to think every once in a while they're going to win that, that Big Ten championship game. They're, they're going to be able to pull an upset. Upsets do happen 
Heck, Nebraska beat Michigan State uh, just last year. But as far as getting enough talent to win a national title, uh, Nebraska's really not even close right now, and I'm not so sure that there's a, a true way for them to get back to that. But read the article. Let me know what you think. Give me your feedback either in the comment section uh, or on Twitter. Again, that's at SBN Recruiting. All right, now it's time for some listener-suggested topics. Uh, I just so happen I wrote about a couple of these this week and a couple I might write about in the future, but here we go. A couple folks wanted to know this week about the long-term success of South Carolina's recruiting under Will Muschamp. The Gamecocks are off to a good start, which is a, a great sign for South Carolina. How much of this is surprising? I'd say not much. We knew that Will Muschamp is a really elite-level recruiter, and Travaris Robinson, their defensive backs coach, is as well, especially in the Southeast, where, where most of their players uh, come from, and especially on the defensive side of the football. Having Hamza Nasruddin and Jemias Williams committed already to four-star defensive backs is a great start. And if I was a defensive back, and I wanted early playing time, which South Carolina has a ton of early playing time it can offer because Steve Spurrier recruited like trash over his last couple of years, especially when it came to getting kids in school. I, I would strongly consider going to South Carolina. I, I think that's a great opportunity to play early and to be coached by some elite defensive coaches. But that's more of a reflection on Will Muschamp, the defensive coordinator. You know, the problem at Florida wasn't the defense. It was that Florida's offense was was horrendous. Every quarterback signed by Will Muschamp transferred. If you're a South Carolina fan, you still have to be pretty uneasy about that. And so far, South Carolina, I think, has gotten... They've been fortunate in some ways that Jake Bentley's dad was on staff and, and he committed there. They have two really talented quarterbacks who are, are freshmen on that roster and, and Bentley and McIlwain, I have to figure that one of those guys will eventually be pretty good for them, uh, assuming they develop them. But that not that the real question with South Carolina? Can Will Muschamp, head coach, develop and allow a successful offense to thrive? Or is he going to be too controlling, too much run the football, run the football, not open it up enough? Um, because if you try to be Alabama without Alabama's talent, that really doesn't seem to work too well. Just something to keep in mind there. The other thing to keep in mind, these kids committed early with, with, with Williams and, and Nasruddin, and they're trying to recruit for South Carolina, particularly Williams. And I wrote about that this week, about how Williams could be a spark plug for that recruiting class because he is so universally respected throughout the Southeast and because South Carolina beat out a number of elite programs for his verbal commitment. But South Carolina's over-under is only like four and a half or five wins. South Carolina seems more than likely to not make a bowl this season. If that happens, and if they get drilled in, in, in some of these games and just boat raced by Clemson, do you think these kids are going to stick with South Carolina? There's really going to be a true test of the strength of their commitment. And if you're South Carolina staff, you have to balance this thing where, where you hype the program up, but at the same time, you need to kind of downplay your team and you need to say hey that playing time that, I, that I've been promising you the reason why I can promise that playing time is because this team's not going to be very good we need you to come in and play immediately in 2017 because the 2016 players we have are not very good but at the same time 
elite players are going to be recruited by other schools, even though they're committed, and they're going to be told, hey, they just missed a bowl again. He's not better than Spurrier. Why would you put put your future in his hands, especially after what happened at Florida? That's going to be the struggle and, and the, the, the obstacle that Will Muschamp and his staff have to overcome at South Carolina. Is the draw of playing time, for especially for defensive players being coached by Will Muschamp and, and Robinson and those guys, enough to overcome the recruiting pitches of other uh, more successful and, and better programs? I guess we'll just have to see. And right off the bat, the probably the most important game for South Carolina's bowl eligibility chances this year is going to be Vanderbilt. It's one of South Carolina's only coin flip type games as far as what the spread is in the SEC. It's a game that if, if South Carolina loses this ball game, it's very difficult to see them making making a bowl. So they're going to have to to play very well in week one. And I personally think Vanderbilt is, is going to get the job done and, and beat the Gamecocks. All right, next, a listener wants to know, actually a couple listeners, sounds like we got a, a big-time Maryland contingent here. Several listeners want to know about Maryland's recruiting in the DMV. So that's uh, basically the, the D.C. area, Baltimore, all basically around the program in, in their backyard, which is a very fertile recruiting area. They got a win this week. Demathic Catholic offensive tackle Marcus Minor uh, jumped aboard, I believe that was Sunday or Saturday, one of the two. Big time get there for the Terrapins. They have to have some guys uh, to give the quarterbacks time, assuming that they eventually will develop uh, some quarterback play there. Big news. You know Kasim Hill's got to like that. Uh, in their class, they already have nine players from the area, which is big. And they have Josh Kando, uh, who is also from uh, from the area, even though he plays at the IMG Academy. They're, they're top-rated recruit. Uh, Four-slash-five-star defensive end, Josh Kando, depending on where you look. Now, several people wanted to know, can Maryland flip Chase Young from Ohio State? I'm not convinced. Uh, I think Urban Meyer is an elite-level recruiter, just one of the truly special recruiters nationally. And if you have a spot in Ohio State's loaded class right now, it's hard to see you giving that up. At the same time... uh, Maryland can offer a lot more playing time. It may come down to something as simple as that. Uh, it's not like the distance is necessarily that bad, and, and Urban Meyer has a very strong history in the D.C. Uh, and, and surrounding areas. But there are other players who, who maybe uh, Maryland can flip or sign from the area, and we, I, we got asked about three of them. So to help with this, I went and talked to Alice Kirshner. Uh, the, the, he works with us at SBNation.com as one of the assistant college football editors, and he also helps to uh, run or still publishes Testudo Times. I know it kind of has a mixed role here, much like I do with Tomahawk Nation. So I asked Alex, I said, these three players I'm getting asked about, what do you think? He's a little bit closer to the Maryland situation specifically more than I am. The first, Chase Young, or not Chase Young, excuse me, Anthony McFarlane, running back slash receiver, a, a real uh, hybrid type player, who has good hands, he, he, you know, he, he can run, he can catch, you can split him out wide, you can do a lot of things with motion. Uh, Alex said McFarland's possible, but he feels like Miami or Alabama are probably likelier destinations. What about Josh Pascal, the defensive end out of good counsel? Actually, 
Alex feels like there's a really good shot to sign Pascal. That would be a hell of a uh, defensive line haul right there. If you can get Spence and Kendo and Pascal, all those guys, to go to Maryland, that'd be a big deal. That sounds like Maryland has a really good shot at him uh, and a player that you know they they want, a, a top 10 strong side defensive end nationally. The final kid, Tyreek Castro-Fields, a talented corner out of Riverdale Baptist. Six foot one, excellent length. You know, all those defensive coordinators want to get the length at that position. Now, he's just a three-star, but certainly has some, some top-level offers. And uh, and Alex thinks that, that Maryland has a strong shot, too, at, uh, at, at what the guys on the Maryland blog call TCF, Tyreek Castro-Fields. The question there is going to be, how much does playing time and depth chart matter to him? Because he, he's still being pursued by Penn State and by Alabama. Uh, is he a take for Alabama? Would he actually ever play there? Or would it be smarter for him to go to a school that's going to allow him a little more time to develop as opposed to, uh, in the industry, we, we would call the term recruiting over him. You know, signing another four- and five-star type the next year who might actually pass you up if you're a player who is a little bit more raw and might need some greater commitment and time-level commitment from the coaching staff to develop. We just spoke about how South Carolina is a team that's probably not going to make a bowl due to their schedule and, and how that could impact their recruiting. Maryland could be something on the flip side, though. If you look at their schedule, it's not crazy to think that Maryland might go 6-6 six and six and sneak into a bowl game. Uh, their first four games, Howard, FIU, UCF, and Purdue. I think Maryland's going to need to go 4-0 in those games to go bowling. But if they do, I think there's a real chance they can sneak out two wins in the Big Ten, con- or well, two more wins in the Big Ten since Purdue's a Big Ten team, at least in name, and get to that 6-6 six and six marks and, and, and go bowling. And if they do that, that's a big deal because Maryland has, has really had some hard times recently. A lot of it was due to, to terrible injury luck just in back-to-back-to-back seasons and uh, if they can get that bowl, that bowl game, you could see Maryland sneak up there and, and have a, a really nice recruiting class because you had that early success to sell, which is not a requirement, but it's something that certainly can help when you're trying to recruit elite players, especially when you're trying to go against programs that, look, making a bowl game is the norm. If, if, if Maryland's coaching staff can have the ability to take the negative recruiting of they didn't even make a bowl game type statement off the table, and take that out of the uh, the opposing recruiter's quiver, I think that that's a big deal for them. At the same time, that is such a tough division. Uh, uh, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State in the same division? I mean, seriously, finishing fourth, if you're Maryland, in a given year in that division, to me, is a success. I mean, all four of those programs have more more success, more history of success, arguably more commitment to football, depending on, on your definition of that. Uh, at least in, in the short term, if that staff can, can get Maryland to bowls maybe you know more than half the time, that would be a huge accomplishment. Next question is about two five-stars. Uh, Cam Akers, your five-star running back of Mississippi, and then Marvin Wilson, the five-star running back or five-star defensive tackle, rather, out of the Houston area. Akers is a player who I really feel that if Ole Miss didn't have the NCAA investigation going on, that, that the Rebels would probably be in the driver's seat for, for, for his recruitment. But given the fact that he's an early enrollee and that there's so much uncertainty going on right now with Ole Miss program, it doesn't necessarily seem 
like like he is considering them as hard as perhaps they would like. Now, if they get things cleared up or if they can provide some clarity, I'm sure Ole Miss will be right back in it. But right now, I think I would focus on on mainly three teams for, for Acres recruitment. Ohio State, LSU, and Florida State. And obviously I cover Florida State for Tomahawk Nation, and even though I don't write a whole lot there anymore, I still kind of oversee our coverage as best I can. People weren't really taking Florida State all that seriously at the time. I've always said, follow the visits. If a kid and his family come down to see a program on their own dime, as Akers did, they have legitimate interest. People don't take their weekends and spend their their hard-earned money on trips where they really don't have any interest in going to see a school. Sometimes you'll see a kid take a visit to a school on an official visit, which is paid for by the school in the fall or winter. Uh, But to take one over the summer, that's on your own dime. And that's a little bit of a different beast. Akers came down with his mom and I believe either his brother or his trainer earlier in the summer to Tallahassee. And then he actually liked it so much that he decided that he needed to see it again so that he could show his dad. That second visit to bring the dad down was very much an indication to me that Akers is more serious about Florida State than a lot in the media believed. Does that mean I think that Florida State leads LSU or Ohio State? Not necessarily. And I'm not so sure that that leading right now matters all that much because you still have the seasons to play out. You still have an LSU program that tried to fire Les Miles last year, ultimately ended up keeping him. There, that, that program could go a lot of different ways this year. There are so many moving parts in that recruitment. I'm not necessarily confident in making a pick, but I am confident uh, that Florida State is more in that than some people realize. With Marvin Wilson the five-star defensive tackle, who also has a five-star offensive tackle teammate in Walker Little. Uh, there are so many schools that are still in it for him. Alabama. Old Miss you know, is still trying to, to, to get, get him to, to schedule an official visit. Ohio State. Oklahoma. Texas. LSU. Maybe A&M. I mean, you're talking six, seven schools, and he's a kid who I believe plans to decide on National Signing Day. So we're, we're still about, about five months out from him making his decision. I, I don't have a good read on where he's going to go right now. And that's another kid. Any kid considering Texas, Texas A&M, and LSU this year is a kid who is going to present a lot of uncertainty in his recruitment because you just don't know how many of those head coaches will be at those schools next year. Is it three? Is it two? Is it one? Could it be zero? I don't know. And I know these recruits don't know either. And a lot of the kids, especially in the state of Texas, are very much monitoring that. And I wrote about that in April, how a lot of the kids who are elite in the state of Texas want to go to those elite schools, those in-state Texas schools with the great tradition and, and facilities and, uh, and and football you know, fanatics for fans. But they're kind of waiting it out to see how well those schools will do. And I expect it to be an extremely busy recruiting season uh, come December, January in Texas. The next question actually kind of ties into this. Can Alabama stop, or can Ohio State stop Alabama's streak of number one recruiting classes, which is now at like six or seven years? And the answer, I believe, is actually yes, despite the fact that Ohio State is going to have somewhat limited room in this class. And the reason is they have so many elite players considering them. Um, but they're going to have to hit some home runs down the stretch. They're going to have to land 
you know, a, a Cam Akers and a Jeffrey Okuda, and, and probably somebody else on top of that who can really set them over the top. They're going to have to do it with star power because Alabama is almost certainly going to sign three or four or five more players than Ohio State is because they just seem to have more room uh, to do so this year, and Alabama pretty fr- pretty flagrantly oversigns uh, each year. The Ohio State is not exactly uh, uh, pure in that regard. Next, uh, how do you account for quality and quantity in the recruiting rankings? This is something I've written about many times. Uh, if you Google Bud Elliott early recruiting rankings, you can find a number of articles I, I try to pump one out each year about this topic. And uh, it's something I feel like matters less and less as we get closer to signing day because everybody, the, the number of players being signed is within a, relative, a relatively normal range. But early on, it, it certainly can, can uh, impact some things and make things look kind of weird. So, to me, quality is more important in a given year. But when you look at at a four-year span, which I feel like is a more indicative look of what a team is doing in recruiting or has done, you need the quantity, too. And the example I would give here is USC. As I said at the beginning of the show, both USC and Ohio State have signed 70% four- and five-star prospects over the last four cycles. The difference, though, is that because of sanctions, USC has signed only 76 total players, where Ohio State has signed 99. The blue chip difference there is 53 versus 69. And where does that matter? In quality depth, in being able to run aggressive physical practices when you need to, in developing players, in fostering competition. So yes, numbers absolutely do matter. I would not want to take a class of just 20 guys a year that would leave me just having 80 players signed over a four-year span. Even if they were really quality players, some are going to flame out. Some are absolutely going to get hurt because football is not a contact sport, but a collision sport. Uh, And so, yes, you do need to sign lots of players to be elite as well as sign high-quality players. They they both matter. Uh, But it's a tough question to answer as far as which matters more. I I don't want a a huge class full of of two- and three-stars. We know statistically that those guys don't work out as often as four- and and five-stars find success. Had a a listener question about Pac-12 recruiting. I feel like I kind of addressed that in the opening into the show, talking about the blue-chip ratio and how the Pac-12 North seems to be better at development and deployment, while the Pac-12 South seems to be better at signing the elite talent, and you wish they could kind of combine those, and, and maybe um, maybe something will happen there that, that allows the, one of those South schools to find a greater level of stability in, in coaching and thus develop and deploy the players a little bit better. Uh, will Florida land any offensive linemen? That's a good question. Uh, yes, they will. Florida, uh, you know, obviously Michigan has been kind of a thorn in their side at times recently, but uh, yeah, Florida's going to sign some offensive linemen. I'll actually say this. Uh, the start to Florida's recruiting under Jim McElwain, I think has been undeniably disappointing. However, Florida this year is doing a better job connecting with players. They're landing more top recruits. Their blue chip ratio is at about 50%, which is really good. Um, so it looks like things are looking up in Gainesville as they should. You should always be able to recruit really well to the University of Florida. Can Texas A&M win back recruiting in the state of Texas? Well, I wrote about this in April. Uh, I discussed this a little bit earlier in the podcast with the recruitments of 
Marvin Wilson and also a little bit with, with the Cam Akers discussion and then also in the blue chip discussion that we had earlier in the show. So if you're kind of tuning into the latter portion of the podcast, I suggest that you go and, and listen to the first half. Uh, had some really good stuff in there. I feel like people are going to enjoy that. Finally, uh, does the Ole Miss NCAA investigation cause other teams to slow down? You know, I, I'm not so sure. Uh, this is a complicated question that takes a lot of inside knowledge to, to answer. And while I feel like I have some of that, I'm not sure I have enough to give a, a complete answer to this. But But here goes. If teams feel like they might get be the next school to be closely examined, then yeah, they might slow down some of the extra benefits they're trying to funnel the players. And to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying that Ole Miss... Uh, first of all, I do think that all schools cheat in recruiting to some extent. I'm not saying that Ole Miss necessarily cheats a lot more than everybody else. They might be, I'm not sure. Uh, certainly they drew a lot of attention with the quality of the recruiting class that they signed kind of out of nowhere in 2013. But if I was a, running a school uh, and trying to cheat for them, I would try to make sure that I did things not on the up and up, but I would really try to do things in a very clandestine manner. I would say, hey, we don't text. We don't use university cell phones. Not that Old Miss did these things, but I would go. I would be absolutely sure, hey, you know what? Don't send text messages. Don't send emails. Don't send checks. That's the Chip Kelly rule, right, at, at Oregon with the Willie Lyles thing. Pay in cash. Don't give cars. Cars are a great way uh, to have an investigation start because compliance checks player parking lots for uh, for you know cars that maybe don't match what's been registered. Uh, if you happen to be driving like a Bentley around, that will probably raise some concerns because under NCAA rule, you really can't have a job. Uh, in school, so how are you paying for that? Which is unfair to these kids anyways. They should be able to be paid and, and paid a lot because this is the sport with the shortest timeline and to, to earn your money and the least guaranteed contracts. And it's just really not fair. But I would say, hey, just, just make sure we're doing things the right way. I don't want to know about it, but don't do things that can be tracked. If somebody needs some money that you know that, that badly, they can pick up the phone and call my burner phone. They are, are, are they don't need to text me. I, I I don't text. My burner phone does not accept text messages. That I would just be very careful what I was doing in case the NCAA decided to give the extra scrutiny to my school next that, that it's doing to Ole Miss. And I do think that maybe some of this for the NCAA is personal. They, they have spent so much time on this Ole Miss investigation. I wonder if now they're... Um, they're convinced that Ole Miss did something, and now they're looking for the proof to, to try to back up what they think. I, I don't know that to be a fact, but I'm just thinking that maybe is something going on. Uh, the Tunzel thing on draft night, though, was especially bad for Ole Miss because it gave the it gave the NCAA an excuse to to unpack their suitcase again. They, they had packed up. They were apparently ready to be kind of out the door and, and, and get this thing moving, and, and most of the violations there were sort of in the, the pre-Hugh Freeze era. And now they seem to be back. Pat Forty of Yahoo reported that uh, the NCAA investigators have actually granted immunity uh, to players at several SEC schools to discuss their recruitments by Ole Miss. Uh, and so that sort of changes the paradigm a bit from something happening 
in school at Ole Miss to something happening with the recruitment of players. So that's something to watch there. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think schools are, are going to stop trying to, to land elite players by whatever means necessary. Uh, you you got to get kids to win. Otherwise, what are you going to do? Be out of a job and say, well, at least they did it the right way. You, you can't buy a vacation home uh, with a statement that says they did things the right way. you, you got to buy it with cash and you got to do what it takes to get players. I think that'll do it for this week. We are right at the 45-minute mark uh, before I edit this thing down. As always, please share this if you enjoyed it. If you have questions for next week, absolutely hit me up on Twitter. That's at SBN Recruiting, or maybe in the comment section of this podcast, we can discuss that as well. And if you have some longer topics you want me to kind of look into that are maybe good for perhaps a combination of audio format and written format, we can also get into that. Uh, Let me know if you think a a non-elite recruiter can win the national title this year, and if so, which one? Uh, With that, hope you all have a great weekend and uh, looking forward to watching college football. This has been Bud Elliott for the SB Nation College Football Recruiting Podcast.